All right, so let's just read um, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. We're just going to roll through this. He says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are proved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. But in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Okay, so again, Paul, as we've seen a theme throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he's concerned about divisions in the church and, and the things that cause um, those divisions. And he wants to address them. And so as he's talking about this meeting, um, what's referred to as the Lord's Supper, where they would, you know, the whole church would come together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to remember Jesus, his death, and his resurrection, um, and that he would return. There's this um, taking of the bread and the cup. Now, remember, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a last supper. He, he actually took the Passover meal, even going back to the book of, of Exodus, where um, Moses leads the people, the, the Hebrew people, um, out of Egypt, um, and out of their uh, difficulties and their oppression. Um, and in that, they, they sacrifice what's called the Passover lamb. And so Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, and he's the great high priest who offers himself as that Passover lamb um, to cover us, to cover our sins. And so he celebrated that Passover meal with them, and then he took the bread and he took the cup and he blessed those um, and he shared them with them, and he told them to do this in remembrance, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And so that's really the, the main instruction for the church when it, you know, to come together is to remember Jesus. Jesus is to be central to the meeting of the, of the church. We meet to Jesus, and we meet for Jesus. And that's really what this is about. This is why we come together on Sundays. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. But we see here this problem that some are, you know, eating and, and drinking even to the point of getting drunk and others don't have anything. And this speaks to um, a couple of different issues. One is that there's a diversity in the economic abilities of different people in the church in Corinth. Um, there's some who have little and there's some who have a lot and there's, you know, all sorts of people in between. They also come from different cultures, and they probably have different foods that they like to eat. The Jewish people probably like to eat certain things that, you know, other ones with more of a Greek influence or more of a Roman influence or from other ethnicities around the world. You know, everybody kind of likes their own, you know, food. And, you know, we're fortunate that we kind of, you know, in the United States, we live in a melting pot, and we have access to all different types of food. And so we tend to be a little bit more, a lot of us tend to be more flexible. We like you know, everything, you know, lots of different things or most everything, um, where as some people, you know, they grow up only eating one thing um, in their life and everything else is kind of different and strange and they're a little bit kind of fearful of eating that. Um, and so, you know, as they're coming together, 
it's, they're not really having a potluck where everybody's bringing something and they're sharing. Everyone's kind of bringing their own meal or their own meal for their family, um, which is somewhat of a, a mistake because it means that those who don't have don't, aren't having really any food to eat or very little food to eat as they would come together for this. Now, it's interesting, a lot of us, you know, our church used to meet in the evenings, but now we meet in the mornings, and, you know, does that matter? Is, is that a big deal? don't think that's that big of a deal. Um, the day is important because we celebrate um, that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and we see the pattern of the um, early church was to meet on the first day of the week. And for the Jewish believers, which were the first believers, that was a huge shift because they always worshipped on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Um, don't be confused about that. The Sabbath is Saturday. And so they would meet together on that day. And so this was a huge shift to say Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled all the old things. And now we have the new covenant in Christ. And that even changes the day that we worship God on as far as our primary meeting of coming together. I'm sure just like we have, there's other meetings during the week as people want to fellowship and see each other and study the word together. Um, that's not... Uh, wouldn't have been an, an out-of-the-ordinary thing. But this was kind of the, the main deal. And, and one of the reasons that they had it um, at night is because f- for, for those people, those first followers of Jesus, Sunday was just a normal work day. You know, they, they didn't get to, like, change culture immediately. And now Sunday is this day where people don't go to work and um, they just go to, you know, to worship God. You know, so they're, you know, working and then coming together in the evening and bringing their food with them and having a meal and, you know, supposed to be for the purpose of taking the bread and cup and remember Jesus and to encourage one another to share the word together, to sing praises to God together. Um, but we see, and we'll see this as we continue through um, chapters 11 through 14, that there are um, abuses and there's self-seeking, there's selfishness. And this selfishness is really illustrated in this lack of willingness to share with one another what they have. And so Paul here, he basically says, you're doing such a poor job in your sharing, it would be better if you didn't bring other food at all and didn't bring other drink at all because some of you are getting even, I mean, imagine this, getting drunk at the meeting to remember Jesus. That's pretty extreme um, and that's, that's pretty terrible. Um, so that's, that's it's, you know, it's one thing to go too far in your own home or with, you know, at a party or something like that, but to have the audacity to, you know, in this meeting for God, to be drinking so much as to get drunk uh, is, is really pretty heinous. I hope that we see that and uh, agree with that. So he wants to correct them. He says, I can't praise you in this. And then he gives, um, you know, what he received from the Lord about this instruction of how this should be done and how this should be taken. And so we want to follow that um, as best we can. And then in verse 27, he begins this um, encouragement or this instruction for people to examine themselves. Before they take the bread and the cup, before you take the bread and the cup, to examine your heart before the Lord and to make sure that you don't have any unconfessed sin before God, any things that you need to make right you know, with the Lord. It may also involve making something right with another person. Uh, just remember you know, what Jesus talked about in terms of you know, if, if there's a conflict and if you leave your gift at the altar you know, and go... You know, go and make things right with your brother and then come back and offer the gifts. So there perhaps in some cases would need to be um, a, a little conversation or a quick conversation um, or at least, you know, the full commitment that you're going to go and make things right with that person um, if, you've, if you've sinned against someone. But here, you know, this, the main focus, though, in these verses we see is to examine oneself before the Lord, to confess sin, then to take the bread and the cup. Um, you know, and really that's, you know, it's interesting here. There's no probationary period. There's no like wait 30 days and then take the bread and cup or wait six, you know, what you did was really bad. So wait six months before you take the bread and cup. No, it's, you know, when the Lord forgives us, he forgives us instantaneously. Well, oftentimes for ourselves, it takes us longer to forgive ourselves of, you know, it takes us a long time for us to forgive ourselves sometimes for something that we've done that's wrong. We want to hold on to it. And the enemy will use it to beat us up and tell us that we're dirty and unclean and we're not forgiven, you know, before God. But those are all lies. And we need to recognize the truth of the scripture, um, 1 John 1, 9, for believers, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise from God. His cleansing is total and it's full and it's done. And so when you are thinking back in your mind or you're being tempted to think, you're, you know, something that you've truly confessed before God, oh, that's still not done. You're still unclean. You're still dishonorable or disgraceful or whatever it is that you can take that and say, that's a law. That's a law. It's not true. Jesus says, I'm forgiven. The word of God says, I'm forgiven and that I'm cleansed. What a beautiful promise. And just to, to shut those, we've got to shut those lies down. And let the truth of the word of God speak to us. Because he says, then you take it. You know, and, and hopefully, you know, the, the, the point of this, as we come together each week, is to keep really short accounts with God. You know, hopefully during the week we confess our sins if, we, if something comes up to us. But here's a specific opportunity every week before you take the bread and the cup to examine your heart, to do business with God, to take that short account with him in your fellowship with him and your walk with him and to make things right. And then you take it. But part of that taking it needs to be the intention of the true heart of not just, Lord, I'm sorry for the consequences. Lord, I'm sorry for the pain that this caused or for the, the bad that I feel, but also an intention to be different than that. The intention to, you know, Lord, I don't want to do this. It doesn't mean you're not going to fail again, but you're not, you know, some people it seems like you have the active intention of, Lord, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry I'm going to go and do this again later, freely and willfully, even today. Well, when, and that's not really sorry. That's, sorry. that's a human sort of sorry. Sorry for the consequences of things, but not sorry for offending a holy God. We want to be sorry because we've offended a holy God who is worthy of worship and praise, and he's worthy for us to, in his power and his strength, strive to be holy. So we want to have that mindset. And it's a very serious thing because he says here, God's judgment on them, the Lord's judgment on them for their abuses is that some are sick and weak and many sleep. So imagine this. In this you know, assembly at Corinth, in this body of believers at Corinth, people have been dying because they've been taking the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. If that doesn't tell us the seriousness of it, I don't know what exactly could communicate the serious to us, seriousness to us, that this is serious unto death. And again, this helps also with our balancing of our theology that God is love and that God is holy. He is love in that Jesus, you know, he loved us and sent his, you know, his son for us and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he is love. But he's also holy that even his own children, he would shorten their lives, shorten their days here on the earth because of their dishonorable abuse and something that is meant to remember Jesus. Because really, we could call it sacrilegious or blasphemous to knowingly be, you know, be full of sin and taking the bread and cup at the same time and, and acting like it's trivial. And so we see God take that very, very seriously. And so, <clears throat> against Paul, you know, at least, at least on a temporary basis, his instruction for them is to eat at home. So you're just coming for the bread and the cup. You're not coming for a meal. Um, and then he says, the rest I will set in order when I come. So there's some other issues that he, you know, having to do with the participation in the Lord's Supper that are still a little bit out, but they're not major enough to be included in this letter. Um, and so he's going to move on. And so we're going to move on as well, which is amazing. <laughs> so move on to uh, chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. 
And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, what does that mean? Let's just stop there. We'll tackle a few, these things as we go. Uh, some of that's for the sake of our, of our time this morning. Um, so he's, he's going to talk, he's introducing, he's going to be talking about spiritual gifts. And so that's what we're going to talk about. And then he says, you know, you know that you were Gentiles. Again, this mixed audience that he, that he has. There's Jewish believers, there's Gentile believers here um, in the church. And yours may, your translation may say pagans. You know, it's a, um, th- th- these sort of terms for, for us can be a little bit loaded. Um, for these people, you know, not so loaded. Um, so we need to keep that in mind. Uh, but, you know, basically say, remember that some of you, you know, you had these, these dumb idols. What do you mean by dumb idols? Just like the Old Testament prophets said, you know, people make things of, you know, out of gold or silver or wood. They make it with their own hands. They create it. And then they bow down and worship it. And it can't speak. It can't hear. It can't do anything for you. Now, again, sometimes the truth of God is offensive to people. Because God is not ashamed to say that he's the true and living God. And he's not ashamed to say that other things that people make as gods are, you know, false and worthless and do not have any truth or any power or even any ability to even hear. Not ashamed to say that. Now, I think as we're sharing the gospel with people, we need to, again, speak the truth in love and then, you know, with charity and with kindness. But we should not be ashamed to tell people that their false gods are their faults, uh, even believing in themselves that, that humanism in itself is, a, is an idol and that it's false. We shouldn't be afraid to say those things. But you just kind of, you went after these things, and we also know there's demonic influence in, involved, and so they can be, you know, kind of wrapped up in that and led by these things. But then he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Now, that's an interesting thing because um, what's, it, what's he getting at, at there? We need to understand that when we're talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus, the word Jesus has to do more with his humanity, and the word Christ has to do more with his deity. And it might sound a little bit strange to us, but one of the first kind of real heresies um, after you know, the, the death of Christ, and he, you know, he raised from the dead, he ascends back to heaven, right? One of the first heresies was that was against the humanity of Jesus. Today, we're often trying to defend the deity of Jesus. No, he really is God. But then some of the attacks were actually against his humanity, that he really was God incarnate, you know, in the flesh and lived among us and went to the cross, you know, for us as our human representative, that he was fully man as well as fully God. But it was the man side of it that was attacked in what's called docetism for your little 25-cent word of the day. But, you know, so there was people who were denying the humanity of Jesus. And then he says, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the, you know, if they're saying that he's not Lord, then they're denying his his authority and his teaching and that he is, you know, the, the king and the one who has the ultimate say in things. And so, basically, he's letting them know, you can know um, who these false teachers are because they have a misguided um, understanding or a, a, a heresy, really, concerning Jesus, concerning his humanity or concerning his authority. And so, we can, in other places, address you know his deity. And so, we can, you know, use that as a helpful tool for us. It's not just the word that is said in terms of somebody saying Jesus is Lord, like just that exact phrase. We, we, you know, sometimes we want to put it as just that, and like, well, the person said Jesus is Lord. That's the word that came out of our mouth, but the other words denied his authority. Okay? And so, therefore, negate it. And so you can understand that person is teaching falsehood or is a false teacher. Or if they, so if, his, if anyone denies his humanity or his deity or his lordship, you can automatically put that person into a category of a false teacher. And so even, you know, you look at what Jesus taught through the Gospels, and if somebody says, well, what Jesus said here isn't really, well, you know at that point. That person is either a false teacher or has believed false teaching and is now spreading that false teaching. 
And so we need to be aware of those things. Okay. What's really cool, though, that I love in this first part of verses is that, hey, you know, you were, you know, you were pagans or you were Gentiles. You were carried away by these dumb idols. Now, there's been a change for many of them. We don't want to lose sight of this. While there are problems, many problems, many really bad problems in the church at Corinth at this time, there are still people who have, many people who have had their lives radically changed by God. And they used to believe all sorts of false things, and now they believe in Jesus. They used to be doing all sorts of sins, and they're no longer doing, and they're living you know, to honor Jesus. Um, and many of them are of that type. And so the gospel of Jesus is powerful, the gospel of Jesus changes people's lives. And we need to keep that in mind. And that's really, you know, our hope. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the news, when I put on, you know, the, the headlines on BBC or whatever news thing that you go to, it can get kind of depressing real quick. Because you see man's inhumanity to man over and over again, you know, whether it's our country or Mexico or Honduras or Syria, or Iran, or Iraq, or China, or North Korea. I mean, all over. You, go, you can basically go country by country, some more, some less, but you will find atro- atrocities in every place. And in some, you will find you know, a complete breakdown of law and justice and order. And you just have chaos and people doing all sorts of evil and awful things against one another. And what can change that? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel can change that. God changes lives. You think about even how brutal the Romans were and the Roman Empire was, and yet so many Romans came to believe in Jesus, even ones who worked in Caesar's palace. The gospel of Jesus is far-reaching, and it's powerful. Okay, let's move to verses 4 through 11. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. So chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation, or the making known of the Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So verse 4, different gifts but the same Spirit. The word there for gift, for gifts, um, is an interesting word because it's not the regular word for, used for gifts. It's not the Greek word that's used, for example, when um, the wise men came from the east and put gifts at the feet of Jesus. Um, this isn't the same type. Um, it's the word charisma, is the word for gift, um, and that comes from the Greek word charis. And you all know we have a little girl uh, with us whose name is charis, little baby. Um, and that word means grace. So charisma is a gift of grace. So these are gifts of grace given by the Spirit of God for the church. Isn't that beautiful? Gifts of God. Gifts of grace given by the Spirit of God for the church. And he says there's different ministries um, diaconess, which is from the word for servant, where we get our word for deacon or deaconess or servant for serving. It's, it has that um, idea in it that one of the privileges that we have as followers of Jesus is to serve. And that makes perfect sense since Jesus was the greatest servant. And that changes our mentality. If you don't have Jesus, the idea of being, you don't want to be the servant, you want to be the one who is served. But when we have Jesus and we see that we've been served by the greatest, by the king of kings that's come and served us, then that changes our mentality about what is the good side. And we see the value 
of serving. And, the, and it changes our hearts and gives us a desire to serve. And so there's different activities. Um, and there's even the, an idea of, of energy there that God's people should be energetic and enthusiastic about you know, the Lord's work. And it's going to come in these diversity of activities. So there's diversity of gifts with the same spirit. Differences of ministries but the same Lord. Diversities of activities but the same God who works all in all. And so we even see the Trinity here. But the making known of the Spirit, or the manifestation of the Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. Now think about that. Each, that means each believer is given at least one spiritual gift for the purpose of profiting the whole. This is really important for us because it goes back again to something we talked a good bit about last week about the priesthood of all believers. That every follower of Jesus, male or female, rich or poor, regardless of ethnicity or socioeconomic status, what job you do, any of those things, all have been given spiritual gifts not for personal glory or for personal benefit, but for the purpose of benefiting the body of Christ. That's awesome. Because again, remember the diversity that we've already talked about in the Church of Corinth, as you have rich and poor, you have different people, all these different cultural backgrounds, and yet when they come together, there's an equality because there's one Spirit, and that Spirit has given gifts to each one as the Spirit sees fit. And those are to be used for the benefit of the whole. Jesus is a great equalizer. So then let's look at a few of these that are given to us. What are some things that are given to us? Um, words of wisdom, logosophia, words of knowledge, logos gnosis. So you have this idea of you know, wisdom to, to understand you know, what, the, what the truth of God is, what the heart of God is. Um, the word of knowledge has to do with you know, knowing you know, all the inf- information about a particular thing, a particular subject. And so people have different um, gifts even there as we talk about a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Um, the gift of faith. You know, some people have more faith than other people have. We're all supposed to have faith, but some people seem to have an abundance of faith. And these people are unafraid to go to, to danger or to the unknown. They're given, given an extra measure of faith to um, break down barriers and to open up new doors. The power to heal. We see healings throughout the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles. Uh, working of miracles. Again, we see these everywhere in the New Testament. Um, prophecy. Uh, so let's talk about prophecy for a minute because that's one that we often have a hard time with. What's prophecy? Um, it's inspired utterance, an inspired word. Speaking the mind, the will, or knowledge of God. So there's some differences in Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, and what we kind of have today as prophecy. Okay, so we'll, let's hit that just for a second. So in the Old Testament, true prophets spoke by the, word of, by the word of God, and they often had the revealed future in mind. This is going to happen, or if you do this, you know, to the king, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you, if you take option A, this is what's going to happen. If you take option B, this is what's going to happen. Okay, so the revealed future. This is what's going to happen. Now, if a prophet said it did not ha- said something and it didn't happen, then according to the law, that prophet should be stoned to death as a false prophet, one who said they're speaking from God but is not speaking from God. That's pretty intense. That's pretty high standard. Are you sure you really heard this from God? Because if not, you may be stoned to death. You know, high level. So we also see prophecies um, um, in the New Testament. I mean, we even looked last week. We saw a few women prophesy um, surrounding the birth of Jesus. Uh, we saw, and those were, you know, included as scripture for us and other prophecies we have, um, you know, in the book of in the book of well, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we have recorded, you know, for us that particular things, you know, would happen of a foretelling of the future. Remember, at this time, the the, the canon is not complete. You couldn't just like go to the store and pick up one of these, a Bible, and go, okay, I have the whole Word of God here, and I can know what it says. So uh, some of it was to confirm or to instruct 
according to the Word of God. Now, today we have an advantage that we have the entire Scripture. So any prophecy that's from today will not add any new Scripture or add any new revelation concerning God or Jesus or what the church is or is supposed to be or anything like that. Uh, we have that revealed to us, you know, fully. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, something, someone like, you know, Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism here in the United States, um, how it should have been easy for believers to say that's false because it was a proclamation of new revelation um, where we have the full revelation here um, in the Word of God you know, for us, and we can test everything by it. Does it match up with what the Word of God says? And usually the answer to things that are proclaimed as a new revelation or a new teaching from God are dramatically different from what the Scripture teaches us on that subject. Always go with the Scripture, no matter who says it or what they're claiming it to be, whether they claim it to be prophecy or teaching or whatever it is. If I say something and it's contrary to what the Word of God says, it's a pretty simple choice for you. You go with the Word of God every single time. But now as you listen to different people preach, you need to be examining, is this according to the Word of God? Not as a critic, but as with discernment to know whether this is from the Lord or not from the Lord. You know, we don't want to be, you know, we can, we can have a bunch of critics in the church and we don't want to be just a bunch of critics. But we do want to have discernment. What I mean by that, even at the, you know, at the game last night, uh, even though Georgia did really well and, um, you know, pretty much dominated, there was a couple of points where, you know, b- people are like, well, I don't know why coach called that play. I don't know why this or that or whatever. And people love that, especially when it's not going, when something doesn't go well. They want to, you know, everybody wants to be a, a critic. A critic. Uh, but understand that in the church, that, that spirit of criticism and, you know, looking to get to every, you know, critique every little thing all the time um, can just bring about a, a general um, downing of, of, of life. It can kind of take joy and happiness away. Uh, but at the same time, we want to have balance because we do strive for the truth and we want things to be true and we want things to be accurate according to the Word of God. And so we need to balance those things. But we definitely want to hold to the truth of God and we want to have our joy in the Lord and in His Word. So as we continue to talking about you know, this prophecy, one of the ways that it differs from belief today in the church uh, from teaching is that teaching is, is something that should be well-prepared. Study has gone into it, meditation of the Word, you know, a lot of prayer. Um, you know, so that is a process that happens before the Word is given. Prophecy is, is more and always has been um, a spirit-led in the moment, not a prepared speech, but as moved by the, by the Spirit to say a particular word, to give a word of instruction or correction um, or in, in, encouragement, exhortation for the church. Okay, so there's a difference between those things. And we really want to be, we want to be led by the Spirit with all of it, but it's kind of like, you can view it this way, when is the Spirit leading? Hopefully the Spirit is leading through the teaching process of the points that should be made and what should be emphasized. But again, that's all in preparation, whereas this prophecy is going to have more of an immediate, com- compelled by the Lord to speak a certain word uh, to, to us. And so we want to keep that in mind and test it all by the word. And this comes right afterwards. How do you like this? We have prophecy and then you know, immediately after, discerning of spirits. Well, there's a reason I think he puts those two right together. Because we need to know, we need people in the church who have the gift of discernment to know whether something is from the Lord or not. Whether it's you know, true according to the word. So some are going to be more experts on the word of God and is, it, is what was said true according to the word of God. Other people are going to have more discernment on mm, that person, I don't feel right about that. That it's self-seeking that a person is abusing their spiritual gift or abusing their opportunity, or that person's a false teacher, doesn't have Jesus at all. You know, and so you, you need to have people who have that spirit of discernment, you have that discernment from God and, and can know those sort of things because they keep the church from being harmed by those who are dangerous, by those who the scripture says 
you know, are wolves in sheep's clothing. Where, you know, again, the church at Corinth thinks they're really smart. As a whole, people, they think they really know. Because, again, their background of all the Greek, you know, debaters and scholars and everything that they have, you know, it's originated from there. And even on the Jewish side, all of their, their the, the, you know, history of their rabbis and everything that they've come from in terms of knowledge and of understanding. But yet we find them to be gullible and that they'll believe the lie of the sheep in wolf's clothing and not have the discernment that they should have. And so we desperately need people in the church who have that meter, that just kind of, that radar, this is like, beep, 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 not good. You know, they start waving the red flag. They start waving the red flag, and then you know, okay, we've got to be careful here. Okay, so let's move on from there. So we have different kinds of tongues. Um, so when we, think about, we talk about tongues, um, for, our, for our purposes, I want us to think back to Pentecost and what happened at Pentecost when the people of God, you know, the, really as the church was born, so the people are there in the, in the upper room, and the men and women are together, and they're praying, and then the Spirit of God comes upon them, and it looks like you know, flames of fire on them, and they go out to the people. And at Pentecost, remember, this is a time where Jewish people from, you know, and converts to Judaism from all over the world have come to Jerusalem to worship. So there's people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, nationalities, and all sorts of different languages. And they say, you know, each one hears the word of God in their own language. Yet, these were all people, you know, from, you know, kind of one locale who didn't know a bunch of different languages. They maybe knew two, at most three. And yet, there's people from all over the place hearing the word of God, wait, these people are speaking my language. You know, other people who don't speak those languages are going, are those people drunk? Because it just sounds like they're talking a bunch of crazy. But the person who was from there, person from Africa, going, that's my tongue. That's my language. What is God doing here? What is God saying to us? Powerful. Powerful. So then the interpretation of tongues, that'd be the ability to understand and to translate the different languages um, that are given. We're not going to go into a ton on that here because we're going to spend a couple weeks in chapter 14 and more um, of the abuses of that and the proper use of that are given in that chapter. So we'll save it for there. Um, And on any of these gifts, because a lot of them are going to be repeated in chapter 14, if you've got questions or what is this or what does this mean, you can, you know, we're going to have a couple weeks break um, from before we get into 13 and 14. So go ahead and send those, and uh, we'll try to tackle it as we go along. Now, verse 11, the Spirit of God gives all these gifts, distributing to each one individually as he, as he wills. So who is the giver of spiritual gifts? The Holy Spirit, right? You know, we do have in the Scripture... Um, you know, Paul talks about, you know, you receive the gift by the laying on of my hands. You know, that, so a person in that sense, like a, the apostle, you know, it could be an avenue for the spirit. But in general, it's just the spirit of God that gives us gifts, gives gifts to the church as he wills and as the church needs. And we can be confident the spirit is going to do that. And the spirit of God is going to look out for his church. Okay. So um, I, when I was in Honduras, I was uh, with... Um, Victor Hugo and his wife Abril and at their house and there was a place not too far away and this guy would come on with a, a loudspeaker and they, they were telling me um, what had happened a few weeks before, prior to me getting there. But the guy during the middle of the day, he's like on his loudspeaker, hey everybody come tonight, I'm giving out spiritual gifts. I will be giving you spiritual gifts, just come on out tonight, I'm giving spiritual gifts. You know, That sort of thing we should have a high level of skepticism about. Because that person is saying, I'm going, I am guaranteeing that later on today, the Spirit of God is going to show up and through me give whoever I kind of, you know, as I'm led to give or whatever, whoever I put my hands on is going to give them spiritual gifts. Or maybe he's just saying that he's going to do it because he's big and bad, whatever the case may be. But in that situation, we need to have a pretty high level 
of skepticism because of who are we to, to like predetermine the Spirit of God is going to show up in such and such way at this particular time. You'd have to have some pretty serious reasons and some serious things going on there with that. So it doesn't mean that everything like that is false. It just means that we need to be very cautious about certain things like that. Okay, so then as we move along, the Spirit of God is the one who gives gifts. Verse 12, For as the body is one, has many members, but as the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For one, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. That's just beautiful. It's, it's wonderful that we've all, remember that word baptized means to put into. So we've all been put into one body. And again, he speaks of that diversity. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. All have been made to drink of that one spirit. You know, all are given, you know, the spiritual gifts that he's mentioned earlier. But he says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now, remember, our context for chapters 11 through 14 is the local church. And so here we have two aspects. We have the universal aspect, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, with every follower of Jesus for all time, in every place. That's the big C, capital C, universal church. But that's displayed in the local church, like we are a local church. And so if you're part of us, if you're part of the, uh, you're a member of our church, meaning you identify yourselves with this local church body, then you are a part of it and that you have a role to play in it. You are a member of it. And so both of these things can be seen here um, in this chapter. So he says, all one body of Christ, the body has many members. If the foot should say, verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So, again, he's promoting this idea of diversity, diversity of people and diversity of gifts within the church, and that we should not strive to all be the same, to all have the same gifts, to all look the same, to all talk the same, all these things. It's not necessary. We need the different parts. We need the different parts of the body being displayed. But we have oftentimes this jealousy of, well, I want to be like that one. I want to have that person's gifts and that person's position and maybe the praise or whatever that that person receives, whether they should receive it or not receive it. And so there can be that desire of, man, I wish I was more like so-and-so. But the problem with that is, if you're a hand and you're trying to be an eye, it's not going to work out too well. You're just going to be not seeing and hitting your hand into sharp objects. It's not going to work too well. You know, it, it's like anything. You know, you have, you ever try to do a job, you know, like say, say you have a screw, all right, and you got the screw there and you're like, well, I'm going to pound this screw in with a hammer. You know, it's similar to a nail, I'm going to pound the screw in with a hammer. That's not going to go very well. It's like you might be able to make something work, but it's going to be a beat-up piece of furniture when you're done. It's not going to look good. And so that's what happens when we try to be a tool that we're not. And sometimes that's what happens when the church tries to take a person with certain gifts and make them fit another role. And this is one of the reasons why we need to use biblical language when we're talking about things in the, in the church. 
This is one of the problems. I mean, I've had so many friends who've gone into ministry and they've become pastors. They become the pastor of a church. Now, that word being completely misused, they're put in this position where they're supposed to teach, they're supposed to visit everybody in the hospital, they're supposed to be this caretaker, all these things. Well, maybe they're good on the, a good teacher. Really, they have the gift of teaching. They should be a teacher in the church. But they're not so great with people. And so they're constantly frustrated because they've got to go and do all this you know, visitation and all this stuff that they're not gifted for. And the church is frustrated because that person doesn't do that very well. And they don't seem super com- compassionate when Aunt Susie's in the hospital. It's a lose-lose all the way around. But by misusing you know, positions and biblical language, by misusing you know, gifting languages and those sort of things, people end up being forced and put in positions to do things that they're not equipped and ready to do or not able to do, not gifted to do. So we want to match gifting with responsibility and service. We want to match those things you know, together and not force people to be a part of the body that they actually aren't. Let them be the part of the body that they actually are. And that works best for the individual, and that works best for the body. Now, as I say that, let me bring in one caveat of balance there. We need to be willing to serve, and we need to be willing to do things that we aren't gifted to do if that's what's good for the body at that time until somebody else can come into that service. There's limitations there. I will not be ever leading singing or anything like that. There's a reason. There's limitations to these sorts of things. But there are other ways, might not be the most gifted to serve or the best fit, but you do it because that's what the church needs at that point in time. But ideally, somebody else is going to come in and fill that role, and you can move on to what you're more gifted and equipped to do. Okay, verse 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you, no much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Okay. So again, all parts of the body, all in different functions, different roles. And um, some, he says, which are, you know, seem to be weaker or seem to need more, more care. And I guess the question that we have there is, do we make room for those people, for those parts of the body that require greater attention or um, have greater needs because people, you know, just in terms of life come in from different circumstances and different things going on. And sometimes on the front end, you don't know all that's going on on someone's life. And at least even for a period of time, they may seem to be weaker. They may need more caretaking from other parts of the body. Are you willing to do that for the good of that person? For that member. But the key thing that he's getting out here, there's not supposed to be division. There's not supposed to be division. There's not supposed to be, think of it this way, because it gets kind of graphic, dismemberment. Because he's using this human body illustration. So, you know, imagine, you know, you're walking around, you know, if, if, if you came in to a place and there were body parts kind of strewn hither and round around the city, you'd be like, okay, something really bad happened here. Something unnatural happened here. Something terrible happened here. Because there's, this body has been divided up. Because the you know, head has said to the foot, I don't have any need of you. Chopped it off and cast it aside. And now it's hobbling around. So... 
this, this sort of stuff happens. Now, why does it, why does it happen? Sometimes it happens because um, there's a lack of the Spirit of God. There's division that's taking place because people are being selfish. You know, in this case in church in Corinth, you can see those who didn't have anything being tempted to be pretty mad when others are coming and eating to a point of gluttony, drinking to the point of drunkenness, and they're sitting there with no food and nothing to drink. Man, I don't need this. Nobody here cares about me. I'm going to move right along. You can see the temptation to think that way and to make a move in that direction. So that's sometimes it's because people don't care for another. Sometimes it's because of the false teaching that's come in and people believe false teaching and then that teaching is, you know, it has to be dealt with some way or another. But oftentimes, you know, people with a false teaching will leave and start their own group or just, or just leave. They've dismembered themselves. They've cut themselves off and moved away. And that happens, and that's a very terrible and sad thing. Um, Sometimes it can be a mess. Sometimes it can be a real mess. And that always hurts. If, If we're doing church in the right way, when a person dismembers themselves, it should be very painful for us. If we're doing church in the right way, because that means you have relationships and you have care and you do try to take care of one another. There's so many churches where it doesn't hurt when a family walks out or an individual walks out. College student walks out. It's like they were just a number. It never mattered. And you could have a lot of those numbers leave and get replaced by others and just like this, and it's not a big deal at all. But that's not really what's being prescribed for us as what the church should be. And it's knowing, you know, to... to, Care for one another and to love one another, you have to know one another and participate in one another's lives. And so that's what we want to be is the type of church that we see described or prescribed for us in the New Testament. Not always the one we see described as here with the problems in Corinth. But we want to be that type. And with that, doing the right thing, sometimes there's pain involved in it. Let me just be real frank. It's easier to do church a completely different model. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. But we're committed to trying to do things how Jesus and the apostles wanted things to be set up in local church. We're committed to that ideal and to that picture because we believe that the benefits outweigh the pain. And we believe that even if our, in our personal experience, let's say that that's not true. Let's say that the pain far outweighs the benefits, the pain far outweighs any joy. We still say it's worth it because the biblical teaching, the idea that Jesus had about his church and the idea that the apostles had as they started these churches in these different towns and cities and villages and all over the world, that it's worth it. That staying true to that is valuable. And so even if it doesn't have the appearance outwardly of success, we say, we're going to keep plugging. We're going to keep striving for that and going for that. I hope you're with me on that one. But understand this. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. We need that to be true in our experience. If somebody suffers a loss, somebody in our church suffers a loss, goes through a, diffi- a difficult time um, in their personal life or at the, their place of you know, work, they lose their job or whatever it is, the church should suffer with that person. What does it mean? You know, there's that sense of empathy to put yourself in that person's place and to try to feel what they feel so that you can love them as they need to be loved. Empathy. But then on the flip side of that, when one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. When something good happens, when somebody gets a promotion or a new job or um, has a, you know, they get pregnant or uh, they get accepted into a new program, whatever it is, there should be joy that comes with that where we all celebrate. And sometimes that's difficult because sometimes that means celebrating that somebody else received what you wanted but didn't get or haven't gotten yet. 
and we're still going to celebrate and be joyful for the blessing in that person's life. Again, looking to serve one another and not looking to be selfish in our approach. Verse 27, wrapping things up. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The answer to that is no. You're curious? <laughs> no. No. It's, a, it's an implied no there. No, not everyone has all these things. And, you know, know who you are and what your role is and how God has gifted you and seek to serve the church in that way. But earnestly desire the best gifts. And so there it does seem like we can even ask God, Lord, I'd, I'd, I'd like to serve a little more in this way or in that way, but I, I need a particular gift and able to do that. Um, and maybe the Lord will answer that to, as a yes for you, and maybe he'll spare you if you're asking for it and it would ruin you. Maybe he'll say no so you don't destroy yourself and others. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And what is that way? Chapter 13 is what we call the love chapter, right? Love. Love is higher than all these gifts. Love is higher than, than all of it. Like you have, if you don't have love in it, the rest of it is you know, inconsequential. Love should overflow. As Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Let me run with that with one verse from Galatians, a couple of verses from Galatians 5, 22 through 26. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us all walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do we see that fruit of the Spirit? The re- you know, you want to test again, hey, is what's being done here according to, is it from God? You can judge it by the fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Is what's said, the things that are said, do they push us to that? Do they encourage us to love more? they encourage us to strive for joy and for peace? and Are we patient with one another? Are we good to one another? Let's strive for all of these things. So here's our conclusion. Spirit gives gifts to each one for the profit of all. We hope to see that every week in our open time and in many other ways on Sundays and throughout the week. We are one body, and the body needs to take care of individuals. So there's a two-way street there, right? Avoid division because division hurts us all. It hurts everyone. It hurts the whole body when it happens. And seek the best gifts and, above all, a more excellent way. Seek love. What we hope, we're hopeful for in our church is more of the Spirit of God, more diversity in our church in every way, um, you know, all sorts of demographics that we, that we see here in the church at Corinth. We want to see that um, in our church here in Athens. Um, we want to see the Spirit of God work. We want to see the Spirit of God move. We want to see people using their spiritual gifts for God's glory and honor, for the benefit of the whole, and the whole works out for individuals, and we do all for the glory of Christ. Not for self-seeking, but for the glory of Christ and for the benefit of other people. When the church does that, it's a beautiful thing, and the church is very powerful to be able to affect change in its culture. But when the church gets swallowed up by its culture, and all those things are lost, we're just a group of people holding on to traditions.
we want to live and walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us, God, in that, God, through the Spirit, you give gifts, gifts of grace for your church. And Lord, even now with our little local church, you know the gifts that it has. You know the gifts that are being used, the gifts that are not being used fully. You know the gifts that we need. Uh, You know all these things, Lord, and we pray that by your Spirit you would lead us and direct us and that we would always be open to your will, to your direction, to your guiding, that we would not quench the Spirit, but that we would be people full of the Spirit. So God, may your presence be known now, even as we take the bread and take the cup, and that each one of us would examine ourselves, and then we would take freely after we've done business with you. And so we thank you again for your love and your grace, your goodness to us, Lord. We praise you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.